0: Good morning, good to have you back, Dick, thankful to see your smiling face again, and uh, all the rest of you as well, just take a moment, I don't know why I feel like resting right now, but I do feel like resting right now, let's pray. Lord, we pray you would quiet our hearts right now, and I just pray, Lord, that by the power of your Spirit that you would remove any distractions that are in our hearts and minds, that we might hear from you what it is that your church is to be about. Lord, that we might grasp the stewardship that's been given to us, that we might really see your heart for the church. Help us, Lord. We pray that you would just remove anything that would keep us from hindering us to see what you have to say to each one of us individually, and it may be something totally different for each person, but we just pray, Lord, that your personalized love would reach each one of our hearts this morning through the preaching of your word, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please stand as we read a section, a small section of scripture from each of the books of First Timothy 2 Timothy, and Titus. 1 Timothy, chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. On to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within you, guard the good deposit, entrusted to you and then Titus chapter 1 verse 5 this is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order you may be seated at the annual meeting the meeting that's coming up after this we talk about what we're doing now plans for the future why we do what we do, and it's fitting to start looking at these three books on this particular Sunday because these three books describe what the church is to be about and how we are to accomplish it. And this, the fact that it fell on this particular Sunday happened not by human foresight, We did not plan this as as an elders board, but it just happened that we came to the end of the Philippians last week, and now we are beginning an introduction to these three books this week. And so, uh, in my mind, I could see God's providence in the planning of that. And in the studying of these three books, I realized there's a lot we could say about them in an introduction. We could do a flyover and talk about church leadership or the responsibilities of men and women and how they might differ Qualifications for different roles in the church, how to care for widows, and I could say, 1 Timothy says this, and 2 Timothy says that other thing, and Titus says this. But as I was looking at all that, my question to myself was, is there a common thread that drives the words being said in all three of these books? And if so, it would seem that we should start there as our logical starting point to give an overview of these three books. And how do you find a common thread when you're looking at uh, such a, a large amount of, of text? It starts with observation. It starts with reading and rereading and rereading. But what are we looking for as we do that? We're looking for a number of things. We're looking for repeated words that keep coming up over and over, and what I have kept noticing was this word entrusted or this word stewardship. But we're also looking for things that describe the purpose of what Paul is saying or telling Timothy and Titus to do. If someone came up to you on the street and said, Here's a $20 bill, what would your first thought be? What do you want from me? (laughs) What's what's your purpose? And that's really what we're looking for when we look at all three of these books. What's the purpose? So the theme we'll look at today is chosen for three reasons. Number one, because it's described as the very reason Paul left Timothy in Ephesus and Titus in Crete. And we'll look at that now. The very reason. So reason number one I'm going to give you, it's the reason he left them there. So if you look at um, Titus, chapter, or 1 Timothy chapter 1. It says this in verse 3, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that, so those are purpose words, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations, here it is, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And so notice what Paul is saying is this stuff's going on and what it's doing is it's distracting us from the stewardship that is from God that is by faith. And so stewardship is his concern and focus that the church has. And what was happening at the church in Ephesus is conversation that was pulling the saints away from what Paul calls the stewardship that is from God by faith. And Paul wants these believers to be connected to that sacred stewardship. The next verse, Titus 1.5, explains why Paul left Titus in Crete. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. And here again, this implies stewardship. We have a saying in, this, in, in, in 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy, it talks about God being the church being God's household, we have a saying about households in order, don't we? Get your house in order. And so Paul has sent Titus to get the house in order, and order and stewardship go together. They're connected to one another. Reason number two we pick this concept of stewardship is that it drives why we do what we do it's the very reason for our activity if we're giving a stewardship over something it will drive everything that we do so even in the in the concept of stewardship it is going to drive the behaviors that are in the church life that are described in these three books and then reason number three i already mentioned why we're talking about this concept of entrusting and stewardship, is because it's emphasized throughout the book over and over in repeated words. And these words reflect Paul's heart that he's trying to convey and impress upon these churches that they're to feel this sense of stewardship and ownership over something. And that something we will see in just a minute. Accepting the responsibility of stewardship changes how we relate to people or to things that we're stewarding. As a non-Christian growing up, I had, and Jill and I have been talking about this, I had a self-centered view of the opposite gender. My so-called love for them was really based, as I really think about it, on how they made me look and how they made me feel. I loved them because what I, I loved what I was feeling in me when we were together. <clears throat> a true love for them would have recognized their high value in the sight of God. But that was not my primary felt need or concern at that time. I became a Christian, and I was kind of barely a Christian, if there is such a thing, in the sense of my growth not in the sense of my, my being right with God and through justification. But I had met Jill, and as time went on, I had a growing sense of her preciousness before God as we were interacting. And the Lord was impressing upon me that there's a stewardship here that you can, you've never really taken seriously in your relationships before. My care for her now in finances, her health, her spiritual well-being presents itself in, in, in multiple ways. Some are clearly spiritual, such as praying for her. Others seem on the surface to be not so spiritual, such as financial planning. But a closer examination of the text that we're going to see today shows that even things like financial planning are indeed part of our stewardship and care for our wives, and that those things are spiritual things too. In the parable of the talents, Jesus himself introduced the concept of stewardship that each of us has, not just church leaders in the kingdom of God, and he says that it is like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them, there's the same word, entrusted to them his property, and then you know what happened. He gave different servants different amounts and Several of them were fruitful in it, and one of them was not. He just buried it. And at the end of that, Jesus said, his master said to the ones who bore fruit from the investment and from what was being stewarded, "'Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master.'" And so in this parable, what makes this this concept of stewardship so important for us today is that while Jesus compares it to exercising financial responsibility, he has entrusted us with the valuable things of the church, and we're supposed to take that responsibility seriously, thoughtfully, and employ whatever scriptural means necessary to steward well. Just as I have been entrusted to prayerfully take care of Jill, and these servants were entrusted in his parable to take care of the talents given to them, Paul is writing his younger sons in the faith in First and Second Timothy and Titus, reminding them that they, are, that they and those under their leadership have been entrusted with something very precious, the truth. And in particular, the truth of the gospel. To understand that God has put something or someone under our care is a sobering responsibility, and it changes how you look at it. The church and its leaders have been given a stewardship responsibility to carefully guard the truth and the gospel and to make sure that the functioning of the church continues to be functioning in such a way that is in support of that mission specifically. In 1 Timothy 3:14 through 15, and I it says I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. And notice how the church of the living God is described in the ESV, it says a pillar and buttress of the truth you get the picture there? That the, that's the church's, in a sense, part of the church's job description. And so Paul is writing to his younger son and sons in the faith who are leading these churches, and as he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we want to hear what the Lord has to say to us in order to be able to do this. And we're doing it today from a big picture perspective, and then in the subsequent weeks, over many weeks, Byron just asked me this, we're going to be going verse by verse through 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. But today we want to look at the big picture. And again, as I mentioned, I think it's fitting that it falls on the Sunday of our annual meeting. And as a side note, I want to say that we shouldn't discount the content written in these books because they're written to church leaders. Timothy and Titus. This content that was written, even if you look at it, you can tell that there's content in here for everyone. For example, in 2 Timothy 2.13, Paul will have words in 14, Paul will have words, 2.14, Paul will have words for all of us. In 14, it says, speaking to, to Timothy, remind them of these things. So that means it's going to everybody, right? And then it says it. Uh, Charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. And so that is for everyone, not just for the church leaders. And then in verse 15, even though it's spoken directly to Timothy, it still applies to us where it says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We all as Christians have that responsibility. And so as we go through these books, um, I say that only to say, not to minimize what the words are in here because they're written to church leaders, this is to all of us as we read this. Once we pass from this life to the next with nothing but our stewardship record behind us, we'll be looking unto Jesus and we'll either hear, well done, good and faithful servant, or something far more sobering. The fundamental concept in his parable about the kingdom of God and Paul's three letters here that undergird all of this activity is the concept of stewardship. And our need is to understand what we are stewarding and how we are to steward it. So that it might be said of us, we were good stewards of what God had placed in our realm of responsibility. And so that's what we will do today. We will look at what we are to steward and how we are to do it. And I have three three points. The first point is the what. We need to guard the truth from generation to generation because we've been entrusted with this stewardship. How do we do that? First, because our stewardship involves guarding the truth, we are to exercise that stewardship by the grace of God through the Spirit. And secondarily, how? Because our stewardship is opposed by the enemies of the truth, we are to be aware of and respond to threats according to the pattern of sound words given to us in this text. First and 2 Timothy and the book of Titus are among the most personal and practical letters Paul writes to his spiritual children, Timothy and Titus. These books are often called if you've done any study on it, the pastoral epistles because they focus significantly on the character and responsibilities of those who teach and lead God's church, but they apply, as we said, to all Christians. Paul wrote 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus to encourage and instruct his co-workers in the difficult ministry situations they were experiencing in both Ephesus and in Crete and to conf- help them confront the common threats that churches face. Some might call these the mandate letters, 1 Timothy and Titus. They are mandate letters to the church, spoken as is, almost as if it's a senior official instructing less experienced individuals on specific responsibilities as a delegate to the church. And then 2 Timothy, the last of the three written, is more of a personal letter of encouragement to Timothy himself. And it's also interesting and fitting to me, not only is this falling on the Sunday morning of our annual meeting, but it also follows last week's message on the topic of stewardship. And so that wasn't planned either, at least by us, but the Lord is sovereign over our events. And so my intent is to fly over a remarkable series of scriptures, and it's remarkable to me because of how often the concept of stewardship and the idea of being entrusted is mentioned in these three letters. So first, the what. We are stewards over the gospel truth. In 1 Timothy 3, we have that description of what the church mission of the church is described as a pillar and a buttress of the truth 1 Timothy 3:15. We all have a part to play in this, not just the people like Timothy and Titus as we shall see because the instructions go to the whole church in guarding this. And I want to look at a few verses that actually highlight that in particular there's a special mention to the gospel. If you look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11, Paul says this, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And so of all the truths that we could possibly read about in Scripture, there's different, all kinds of different truths, the gospel is elevated as something that Paul mentions here. And the, that gospel is that Jesus lived the perfect, righteous life we could never live, which is necessary in order to stand before a holy God. And because we didn't live that, purchase li- that per- perfect life, He was crucified on a cross and his punishment, our punishment, was taken by him on the cross in our place. And he is now risen from the dead and lives not only to intercede for us, but also to be our constant aid and help to help us become more and more like him in our daily lives. And that gospel is is what we are entrusted with. Because the people in this world, including ourselves, have no other hope but the righteousness and the death of Christ on our behalf. That is the precious truth that we are to guard. The guarding of this truth is warfare. In 1 Timothy 1, 18 through 19, notice how these words keep popping up. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Holding faith and a good conscience by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. And so there is the disastrous results of not guarding the truth And it was interesting to me, we did go, before Philippians, we went through Mark. The first two sentences that Jesus says has to do with the gospel and the stewards of the gospel. His first sentence in Mark is, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And then his second sentence in Mark is, Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That's the stewards. And so the first two sentences in the book of Mark have the truth and the stewards center stage, which is what we're talking about in these three books here. Our stewardship is a stewardship of gospel truth, but second, because we are stewards of gospel truth, we necessarily must be stewards of godly conversation within the church. Turn to First Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Ooh, I didn't see this. I've been wanting it, and I didn't see it. Thank you, Dean or Barb. No? John Dudley. Thank you, John Dudley. There's a verse in the Bible about giving water. In Jesus' name. 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 3-6. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Notice what's pitted against the stewardship from God that is by faith. The word Speculations. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And if you didn't notice, that's the banner on the wall here on the left. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered into vain discussion. Vain discussion, someone has said, is discussion that has no logical end. It, it, you can just keep talking about it and talking about it, and because it's not based on fact, it's it's only based on speculation. It goes nowhere. And what what Paul is instructing Timothy is that needs to be shut down. Because when you when you're expressing all your energy into those things, what are you not stewarding? The gospel, the truth. In the uh, king james this word um, stewardship from god is is translated godly edifying or godly edification and the question is what does that have to do with stewardship how is godly edification and stewardship related in the church stewardship in the church if you think of the church it's really a network of relationships and conversations To steward the church is to help ensure the conversation consists of godly edification, which builds up the house and produces a promotion of guarding the truth. Talking and talking and talking about speculation, by definition, is not based on faith, because faith has as its objects objective truth and facts. A gospel steward over God's household will ensure godly edification is taking place in the body because that is what builds up the household. A poor steward of God's household will let all manner of speculative ideas run rampant in the church. In Colossians, Paul said the stewardship was not for speculating about things, but it was based on something else. Colossians 1.25, you don't need to turn there. It says, which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. That's the conversation and that's the content of the stewardship. The wrong kind of conversation gets in the way of making the word of God and in particular the gospel fully known. In 1 Timothy 6, 20-21, we see this word entrusted again. It says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Stewardship is guarding the truth. Babble... Is poor stewardship of the gospel. It breeds quarrels, which is poor stewardship of time, energy, and a poor witness of the gospel. This word babble, you know, I wonder what's the Greek word for babble? Um, and it's made up of two words, two Greek words. One is kenos, which means empty, and phone, from which we would get like phone. It's empty sound just it's it's of no value it's just empty sound and these things war against the gospel even though it seem it may seem innocent it's really not we've been entrusted with a stewardship of gospel truth godly conversation and now we do this because we've been entrusted with the stewardship of preaching If you turn to Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, it says, Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, here come the purpose words related to the truth, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. Notice the focus. It's the faith of God's elect. Are The words I'm speaking for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth as found in the Scripture, it says, which accords with godliness, verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been, here's that word again, entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Titus 1, 1 through 3. And the preaching being primarily being done by overseers in the church, who in Titus, if you look at Titus 1, 7, Overseers are referred to as what? God's what? Steward. This all fits. This all fits together. It's so fascinating to me. And then, in, and then through, through the stewardship of the gospel and the stewardship of preaching and for overseeing um, godly conversation, it is also to be a stewardship that is to outlive us and this is found in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verses 1 through 2 where Paul says to Timothy you then my child be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses next word entrust entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also This is to live on and to live on and to live on. In 1 Timothy 1, 3, 14 through 15, Paul writes the reason for his writing. I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. If I delay means if I'm not there, I want you to know how to behave so that you can be a pillar and buttress of the truth. And if I'm not there means I am writing this down so that even if I'm not around, either if I'm alive and I'm not there or if I'm dead, by writing it down, it lives on after me. If you want something to live on after you, write it down for others. Jill my wife is keeping journals for her grandchildren, and I can just imagine the preciousness that that is going to be to them uh, as she hands those over to them or other people hand them over to them. When I was, uh, when, when Terry was in his final days, I'm sure I'm not the only one that he wrote an email to instructing, um, but he, had a wrote, he wrote me an email with the feel of Second Timothy. And um, Jill printed it for me and put it on the back of a picture of Terry Priestap and myself. And uh, I just had this drawing sense recently that I should go pick up that picture and turn it over and read it. And I did. And um, in my recollection of that, I believe my eyes were wet as I was reading what he wrote to me. Those words on the back of the picture outlived Terry's time on earth. And so Paul is writing Timothy. So even if he's not there, the work can go on and continue. And so a lot of the things that we do in ministry is to and try to ensure that the things that people do, the wisdom that people have, they're writing them down. So that someone who comes behind doesn't have to start all over again with what the best way is to do something. And uh, so take, for example, Barb Bernhardt, who is so good at bereavement, we've discussed and she's talked about writing down what she does so we don't have to relearn things. And Barb's still learning things, um, she told me, so wonderful stuff application does our life reflect that we are taking seriously that we're to be stewards of the truth of the gospel does our conversation with other believers center, center around godly edification and when speculative ideas start floating around do you fuel that conversation because it's more exciting to discuss, discuss that stuff or do you steer the conversation toward toward godly edification and a building up of the truth in Christ and are we passing on to the next generation the truths of the gospel that they may outlive us? Or is all, our, and is all of our time and effort put into various goals in our life, where does understanding and communicating the gospel truth fall from a priority perspective? We need to guard the truth from generation to generation because we've been entrusted with the stewardship. That's the what. Now the how. And with that we move to 2 Timothy Chapter 2, sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. Our stewardship involves guarding the truth, and we are to exercise that stewardship by the grace of God through the Spirit. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. And so even though there are a lot of instructions to the church about how to do this and how to do that, ultimately our faith in this job is in God himself being the one. Because this is hard. This guarding the truth is hard. And if the faith is in ourselves and not in Christ who's guarding it for us, we're going to give up. We need to know that we are not alone in this. And then if you go two verses later, this was, one of my, this was one of those fascinating discoveries I had in my study. If you go two verses later, look at what he says to now, after he says, he's able to guard what's been entrusted to me, what does he say to Timothy? By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Isn't that interesting? Interesting. I never saw that connection before. 12 and 14 are essentially saying the same thing. 12 is saying, God's going to guard it for me. 14 he's saying, you by the Spirit, the Spirit will help guard it for you too, as well. I love that. And yet, it does involve effort in 2 Timothy. Chapter 2, verse 15, he says to Timothy, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. That do your best, I believe, in the, in the King James is um, the word study. And so we trust in the Lord, but we work hard. We do our best. We still study. then besides doing it by the spirit notice second timothy chapter 2 verse 1 you then my child be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me the truth in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men and so that passing on of truth to other faithful men is done how we are strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. In all of this effort, we are constantly drawing on the grace that is in Christ by the power of the Spirit. There's something else we want to notice very carefully. In verse 12, it says, We're to guard what was entrusted to Paul. God will guard what is entrusted to Paul. In verse 14, it says, By the Spirit, Timothy, likewise, exercise your your stewardship duties. This is a supernatural work, right? However, this doesn't mean the execution of our stewardship, that is a supernatural work, isn't associated with order and patterns. Look at verse 13. Follow in between, this is a supernatural work, verse 13. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me. Sandwiched between an emphasis on the supernatural help that we received in the stewardship is how we are helped supernaturally is is a a command to follow the pattern of sound words. And that's what I want to explore next. Because for each threat to the truth that comes into the church, there is a pattern to follow. There are sound words that are given to Timothy and to Titus and and also to us as a result. Threat number one, for which a pattern is required. Lacking order in the leadership and care of the church. Notice in Titus 1.5, we read this already, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. This idea of the church acting in an orderly fashion is found in 1 Corinthians 7.35 and Colossians 2.5. It is something that is on Paul's mind. I want order in the church. I want the church to function in an orderly way. And that order is supernatural. How high on your list, if you're writing to a church, Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, for though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith. How high on your list would it be if you're looking at a church and you're kind of assessing them and you write to them, would, I'm rejoicing in your good order, would that be high on your list? I don't know that that would be necessarily high on my list, but it. To Paul, the good order meant good care. Good care. Both the word pattern and the word order give the connotation of a non-random arrangement to follow. These, these kinds of things, this, this sense of organization, you know, we can, we can take it and then we can trust in it, and then that's where we get into trouble. But because it's possible to trust in our organization doesn't mean that it's not a supernatural thing that we should seek to produce. If you look at what is called for, for example, this concept of order and stewardship going hand to hand, in these books... Order manifests itself in in multiple ways. First, in the orderly care of widows. If you read 1 Timothy 5, 9 through 16, and the criteria to establish whether someone is truly a widow and not a widow, you know what it sounds like? It sounds like a policy. There's all this criteria established for who is and who isn't a a widow. And inside that policy we see who fits the criteria. And, and, it, and once someone fits the criteria, there's, a, there's something that should be done as a result. The true widows are to be, what in the uh, ESV says, enrolled. What does enrolled mean? Some, some verses of, of some translations say, put on the list. There's actually this notion, not only a policy, but there's a notion of record-keeping, in the orderly functioning of the church. And why is Paul advocating for a widow policy and record-keeping? Because this spiritual body the church so it can operate in an orderly fashion. And what is the side effect of this? Paul says as much in 1 Timothy 5.16. It says, so those who are truly widows will be cared for. In other words, the implication is, if you don't do this, if you don't establish this policy, and you don't do this record-keeping, the ones who are truly widows won't be cared for. And all of that record-keeping and policy creation is supernatural. It's sandwiched in between those two texts of scriptures. We do this all by the help of the Spirit. We also see it in the assignment of elders and deacons. In Acts 6, we're given the reason why deacons were established. They were established to do something different than the elders were to do. And the simple principle behind this of establishing elders and deacons and giving them different job responsibilities is what we would call in modern day division of labor, In chapter the same this principle of division of labor is used when multiple people are used to accomplish one goal by, by dividing the work into parts. The human body to which the church is compared is a marvel of order, is it not? When it is healthy, it is extremely orderly. When it is sick, it is disorderly. To promote order in the church for a coordinated functioning between the parts is to respect the analogy of the church as being like a human body. Which is wonderfully made. No wonder Paul says he rejoices to see their good order. We are to function in the orderliness of the human body. Where each part does its work. One subtle threat to the order in the church is to see some of these things as god's these some of these what seem to us as natural means what you know what we might see in other places outside of church to see these things as natural means to accomplish these purposes as something that we really shouldn't be pursuing and almost as if and, I, and i've said this before if we rely on our plans that's sinful. We don't want to rely on our planning, but we do want our planning to be the result of God's inspiration, right? And so, one really neat example of planning being juxtaposed next to or set next to the help and supernatural help of God is from Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 7 through 8, where Nehemiah says this Notice the planning involved in this. If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah and let a letter to Asaph the the keeper of the king's forest that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy that's that's a plan right that's a plan This like Bill of materials, that's probably not bill of materials, so I'm probably using wrong words now, but um, that's, that's that's a plan. And then he says this, and the king granted me what I asked. In other words, the king allowed me to execute this plan. Look at what it says. For the good hand of my God was upon me. We plan in the grace and strength and wisdom of God, but we don't trust in them. And we let God interrupt what we think is our plans, knowing that we're finite in this process. Who invented the idea of planning? God did. And we're made in his image. Everything he does is according to his plan. We just don't always see it. And the things that happen to us that seem spontaneous, like the calling of the Ethiopian eunuch, When you see it unveiled in the pages of Scripture, it was really all planned out, well planned out. But there's another more obvious threat to our stewardship of the truth, and that is direct false teaching. And this is touched on in 2 Timothy 2, 17 through 19. Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened and they are upsetting the faith of some. And so, as a result of that, the pattern of sound words that's given to Timothy, the counter to false teaching is preaching the word. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. Paul to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God. And notice the reason why he's telling him to preach. I charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead. This is as sober as it gets. And by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort complete, with complete patience and teaching. Here's why. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. And so preaching is the sound pattern we are to follow to remedy false teaching, the threat of false teaching against the church's stewardship of guarding the truth. And what do we have evidence in Scripture of what this preaching looked like? Acts 20, on the first day of the week, Acts 20, verse 7, on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. This is Paul talking and teaching. And when Paul says all scripture is given by inspiration of God at the time of the writing, that was the Old Testament. And there we have a model for reading and explaining the scriptures. And that is found in Nehemiah 8.8. It says they read from the book. There was a platform, and they set, they set them up on the platform, and it says they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, so they read the scriptures, and then right after it says this, and they gave the sense, in other words, they explained it, they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And so when you took it, look at what Paul did and what they did in the Old Testament, this is the... The biblical expression of preaching, and preaching is what fights against the false teaching that's a threat to our stewardship. Threat number three, a cousin to false teaching, is speculation and vain discussion, which we talked about earlier. We live in a day and age where foolish controversies, dissensions, and speculations are multiplying Every day. And here's why. One writer says, we live in a world where we cannot go a single day without hearing that truths are based on how we see things rather than what exists to be seen. Truth is not out there to be found. It is in here to be narrated. And so our news cycle is filled with the mess that this produces. And I don't have to repeat it here. But what this does in our culture is it produces speculation and vain discussion because there's so much junk that we could respond to and get upset about. And it gets multiplied day after day after day. And some of us are more eager to seize upon the finite mistakes of others, even the world, um, and then want to just talk about it and talk about it and talk about it. I have a friend who um, uh, likes to seize on... uh, Mistakes, and he um, came to our church one day, and the sign in the front, um, the the uh, S fell off of fellowship, and so to this day he calls our church Christian Fellow Hip, and but you know we we and that's funny and that's fine, but we if if we are wired to be um, tuned into this this quote unquote stupidity of the world. We can lose our compassion and just get mad at what we see. And this is what happens. It can be fun to talk about that stuff, but it says here um, in, in, in 1 Timothy 6, we can have an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy and dissension and slander and evil suspicions. When we start talking about people, oh, he did that and he said that, I bet. That's, that's, that's what the scripture calls evil suspicions and constant friction among people. These, it says in 1 Timothy 3, 1, 3 promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And so we're given three things we're to do when confronted with speculative t- talk. And I don't have time to cover all these, but in, it says here, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Avoid irreverent babble. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. These are all different. I mean, this, this is another theme in, in, in these books. This just keeps coming over and over This is stewardship over ensuring godly conversation. The other thing Paul says to do is that when you do have opponents like this, how are you to act? The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. And here's why. That God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Our gentleness with the mess that comes in, it has an evangelistic effect, a repentant effect. I remember seeing uh, a video of of, uh, a church leader talking about the mess that he perceived in the world. And the whole thing was just sarcastic, brash just making fun. And it, it occurred to me, if he does see truth, does he not realize it's only because of the grace of God in him? And shouldn't that produce a humility and a gentleness toward others? I was really and So we need to guard the truth from generation to generation because we've been entrusted with the stewardship. And because our stewardship involves guarding the truth, we're to exercise that stewardship by the grace of God through the Spirit. And because our stewardship is opposed, we are to be aware and respond to the threats according to the pattern that has been given to us. I really could not get to know Jill until my view of Jill matured from... What she could do for me to one of stewardship and care for her. Caring for her meant listening to her words and in listening and listening deeply, I'm still working on it, Jill. I could really come to know her heart, which is what I really tried to do in these letters. Until then, the Jill I was interacting with was the one who was in various ways trying to get my attention. Not the Jill that I would come to know more deeply. Only after I had taken my stewardship responsibility seriously and truly listened. Only then can it be said that I am truly loving her. And the same is true with our stewardship of the truth in Jesus. We need to see our responsibility to, by the Spirit, truly listen to his word. So we as individuals know his heart. To know why he said he came to testify to the truth and to assign and call the 12 to assign stewardship to them and, and from them to us. In really listening to his words in scripture, we will learn how to, by him, by supernatural help, succeed in putting things in order in his body according to the pattern of sound words given us in order to guard the truth, to keep his word. And the intimacy that we all long for in him, that we desperately need and desire, can be met. Jesus said in John 14, 21, "'Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, "'he it is who loves me. "'And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, "'and I will love him and manifest myself to him.'" Judas, not Iscariot said to him, "'Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us "'and not to the world?' Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And so as we study these letters, we may know, may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And we can only do this, any of this, as we are strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we pray you will align and unite our hearts and minds to be led supernaturally by you, to place everything in order, and to get rid of anything that wars against the guarding of the gospel. cry out to you. And as we come into our annual meeting, Lord, we just pray you would help us focus our minds on those things that are most dear to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.